Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Okay, 1 John chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 24 to 27 today. Um, <clears throat> since we had the missions conference last weekend, um, it was two weeks ago that we were in the book of 1 John, and you might recall that Two weeks ago, we considered this question of those who are trying to deceive you. That comes from verse 26 of chapter 2. Um, we learned from John that there are people in the world seeking to deceive Christians. John calls them antichrists. Uh, he explained a little bit about what they teach. They deny the humanity of J Jesus. They deny the divinity of Jesus. And very often what they end up doing is they end up leaving the church. And so in that message two weeks ago, John was helping us to understand how to identify those who present false teaching to the church. So today is going to be kind of part two of that sermon because we left John basically in mid-thought in verse 23. And we'll be starting with verse 24 today. But it's kind of continuing with this same idea. So we're going to consider... Um, Two weeks ago being part one, identifying the deceivers. Today is part two of this message, which is going to concern the task of inoculating ourselves against the deceivers. I'm one of these guys who um, was very reluctant to get a, a flu shot for a lot of years because I really never got the flu, and so I didn't see any reason to get the shot. But last fall, I got the flu, and I got it bad. <laughs> I was down for about a whole week, and I hadn't been that sick in a long time. And so um, I have a new policy now, and that is that uh, I'll probably be getting my flu shot next year to make sure that doesn't happen, to inoculate myself against the flu. And spiritually speaking, we can take similar steps to inoculate ourselves against false, false teaching and deception, and that's what John is talking about here in verses 24 to 27. This is just so important because um, deception is such an insidious thing, isn't it? I mean, you never meet someone who knows that he's deceived. I mean, that's what makes it so dangerous. When people are deceived, they don't know it. That's the nature of being deceived. You know, we get blind to our own blindness. And one of the reasons, or one of the yeah, reasons why this is difficult is because sometimes false teaching comes to us in kind of deceptive ways. That is, um, sometimes false teaching concerns mostly truth, but then there's just a little bit of falsehood. There's a little bit of twisting. There's a little bit of perverting of the truth going on, but that little bit can be very dangerous. Or sometimes with false teachers, it's not so much what they are saying, it's what they're not saying and what they won't say that is the problem. But if you don't really know, recognize what they're not saying, it can be hard to tell how dangerous it is. So John is giving us some instruction here about inoculating ourselves against false teaching as we consider those who are trying to deceive us. So let's stand for the reading of God's word, 1 John 2, 24 to 27. John says this, Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. 
I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. But the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just at his just as it has taught you, abide in him. God, we ask for your Holy Spirit to bless this sermon, to open our eyes, to behold the truth, and to guard us from deception. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> so how, how do we do this? How do we inoculate ourselves as best as we can against false teaching? Two things here today, just two things. And the first is very simple. You must abide in the word. The the first step to preparing yourself for deception is abiding in the word. So look what it says in verse 24. John begins and says, let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. So what does that mean? What they heard from the beginning. I think what John is referring to is the message that his readers heard from the apostles of Jesus at the very beginning of their Christian life. He's referring to apostolic doctrine. Jesus, when he performed his earthly ministry, he walked on this earth, he taught, he performed miracles, he healed people, he went to the cross and died and was resurrected, and he appointed apostles and informed them and instructed them, and he told those apostles, go out and teach what I have been telling you, and the Holy Spirit will bring to your memory these things that I've said. And what the apostles did is they didn't only teach, but they ended up writing down these things in what is now called the New Testament. So I'm making a jump here from what you've heard from the beginning to the Word of God, because I believe that's warranted based on the role that the apostles played in promoting the message of Jesus. And so this message that the apostles proclaimed was simply that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God, that he is the one prophesied in the Old Testament, that he is the one in fulfillment of Genesis 3.15 who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent, that he's the suffering servant who's going to come and he's going to die on a cross and be resurrected from the dead. That is Jesus Christ, the God-man, who has come for our salvation. And what John is saying here is what you heard from the beginning, that basic message, abide in that. Stick in it. Don't get diverted from that. Because apparently what was happening is these false teachers were coming into the church and they were telling the people that John is writing to, they were telling the church that that apostolic message is fine, but it's not quite enough. And I've got more for you. I've got something in addition to that gospel. I've got something that's a little better. I've got something that's new. I've got something a little more exciting. I've got additional revelation. What the apostles taught you, yeah, that's fine, but there's more. That's not enough. Listen to me. That's what the false teachers were saying, and that's what John has in mind as he's writing this. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. Don't get distracted by this constant pining after what is new and faddish and trendy and novel. I mean, this is not something new. It's interesting in Acts chapter 17 when, Acts, uh, or when uh, Paul went to Athens and he was preaching there, and it says in verse 21 of Acts 17 that the people there, the residents of Athens and all the foreigners, that all they did was sit around and talk and hear about something new. 
That's all they wanted. That's all they were excited about. And we talked about this a few weeks ago earlier in John, but that is a constant tendency, I think, that we all have. And it's not just this culture, but it's cultures past apparently also. What is old sometimes gets a little boring and overly familiar, and we find ourselves constantly looking for something flashy, something trendy, the latest book, the most uh, recent teacher that everybody's listening to and that everybody's going after. And we begin to have this tendency or this temptation to reject what we heard in the beginning. This is, this is John's point. Get back to the basics. When it comes to the gospel, there's no need, friends, to be creative or innovative. I, I, I'm going to say this. I might rub some people the wrong way, but, but I think it's true. And that is that when it comes to theology of the gospel, we ought to be inherently conservative. We are not called, when it comes to the gospel, to be progressive. We're not called to be trying to invent it and change it and adjust it. It doesn't need adjusting. It's just fine the way it is. It's just to find the way it was proclaimed in the beginning. The apostolic gospel is all we need for salvation. I mean, look what John says a little later in 2 John 9. Everyone who goes on ahead and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, does not have God. The ones who go ahead of it, who want to get beyond the basics. Basics aren't good enough anymore. We need something new. Remember the Old Testament prophets. When they came to Israel to challenge Israel, they were always calling Israel back to the law. The prophets were never encouraging the people to be creative or innovative or to go on beyond what they had heard. The prophets were always calling people back. And so we have this warning in 2 Timothy from Paul. He says, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. And we might say the sound teaching that you heard from the beginning, the apostolic gospel. They, They won't endure that anymore with their itching ears. For something new and fancy and flashy, they're going to accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions, and they're going to turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. So this is what John is saying. What you've heard from the beginning, that apostolic gospel, abide in that. Verse 24, abide in it. Now what does that mean? Abide in this truth. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. A simple definition of abiding is just to remain to remain, Um, but uh, a commentator uh, defined it this way, it's to take up a permanent address or to make a settled home. (laughs) It's like that descriptive way of talking about it. Let what you've heard in the beginning abide. Let, Let the word, the gospel, as it's recorded in the New Testament, let it abide, remain, take up resonance, and make a home in your heart is what John is saying. It's a way to inoculate yourself against deceptive teaching. Give yourself, devote yourself to this message as it is proclaimed in the word. What does that mean? It means you, you read it. It means you hear it, you listen to it. It means you talk about it with other people. It means you discuss it. It means you study it. It means you memorize it. It means you meditate on it. It means you take it with you in the morning and you take it with you at night. You immerse yourself in the word so that it's always with you in your heart and in your mind. 
Abide in it. Remain in it. Let it make a settled place in your heart. That's the best way to protect yourself against false teaching. J.C. Ryle says this, What is the best safeguard against false teaching? Beyond all doubt, the regular study of the Word of God with prayer for the teaching of the Holy Spirit. It is neglect of the Bible which makes so many a prey to the first false teacher whom they hear. I mean, particularly when people are, false teachers are refusing to say certain things. I mean, without a familiarity with the gospel and the scripture's teaching, it'll be very hard to recognize what a person is not saying when he should be saying it. So some of you are new Christians, and maybe you think, this is overwhelming to me. I mean, the Bible is a big book, and it's like, okay, we're all at different levels of being able to recognize certain things. But if you're a young Christian, well, just don't put this off. I mean, it's a lifelong pursuit for all of us remaining in the word and learning more about the apostolic doctrine so that we can be prepared. So here's John's reasoning and why this is so important. If you look at verse 25, he says this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. So there's the the basic blessing of the gospel Eternal life, life after death, forgiveness of sin so that we don't endure the penalty of our sin any longer. And this promise, this is what has been promised to us by the Father. See, at the end of verse 24, I'm going to kind of work backwards here. In the Father, and this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. The Father has promised this. So in order to have eternal life, we need to know the Father. We need to have relationship with the Father. So how does that happen? Well, notice he mentions abiding in the Son and the Father. If you go back to verse 23, which we covered two weeks ago, notice how he says it. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. It's very simple. If you want a relationship with the Father, you've got to know the Son. There's no other way to have relationship with God than through the Son, is what Paul, excuse me, John is saying here in verse 23. So we want eternal life. How do we get that? Relationship with the Father. How do we have relationship with the Father? We have relationship with the Son. But how do we remain in the Son? Keep going back in verse 24. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise he made to us, eternal life. Do you see how important this is to abide in the word? To abide in the word is to abide in the son. To abide in the son is to know the father and to know the father is to have eternal life. This is absolutely central for us. And the means by which we do this is through faith in what Jesus has done. But faith comes by hearing the word of God. That's how our faith is increased and strengthened and preserved. My wife tells a wonderful story of um, her grandmother who was a faithful Christian all of her life and she had a nervous breakdown later in her life and so she was in um, uh, uh, an institution of some kind and she was there of course with other people and a lot of these people were having um, you know, mental difficulties and challenges and didn't always know exactly what they were saying and lots of stuff were coming out of their mouths. And um, apparently a lot of these people were just uttering profanity, you know, just out of their mouths, maybe kind of involuntarily. But really what was happening is that what was in their heart throughout their whole lives was beginning to come out of their mouths. But Mary's grandmother 
in that similar kind of diminished mental state, out of her mouth was coming scripture. Just Bible coming out of her mouth. When she wasn't even probably in full control of her mental faculties. Why? Because all of her life she'd been putting the word in her heart. She'd been abiding in the word. I mean, do you ever wonder that? I mean, when you start to lose your mental capacities, what's going to come out of your mouth? <laughs> if you're abiding in the word and tucking it away, memorizing it, meditating on it, cherishing it, treasuring it, then the truth will come out and you'll remain in the Son and remain in the Father and eternal life will be yours. So you must abide in the word. So important in dealing with the possibility of deception. The second thing that we see here is this, remembering this, that the Spirit abides in you. The Spirit abides in you. And this is not so much what we do, but more what God has done in giving us the Holy Spirit. So look at verse 27. He says, The anointing that you received from him abides in you. The anointing. So what, what does that mean? Mean Well, if you go back to the Old Testament, the uh, word anointing is used quite often for um, um, kings and priests, <clears throat> kings and priests who are anointed with oil. Uh, in the Old Testament, sometimes things, objects were anointed. The tabernacle was anointed, the furniture in the tabernacle. Um, sometimes shields would be anointed that soldiers were about to take into battle. And the idea here is that the anointing is a separating for God's purpose. It's a setting apart for a holy purpose. That's really what anointing means. Um, now, if you go back to verse 20, uh, we kind of skipped over this two weeks ago. Um, but in verse 20, it says, you have been anointed there's that word again, by the Holy One. So the question now is what is meant by the Holy One, a little bit of a vague term. But if we look at other passages in the scripture, you'll see, I think, what John has in mind. For instance, in Isaiah 61, verse 1, the Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. So anointing here is being connected with the Spirit. And uh, we see this again in Acts 10. You yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. So I think the Holy One in verse 20 is referring to the Holy Spirit. So if we go back to verse 27, the anointing, I think what that means is, the giving of the Holy Spirit to you. This is a reference to the time in which the Christian was converted, regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what anointing is. Now, you know, think about just kind of a grand summary of the gospel. The gospel began in God's heart and mind when the Father chose you, set his heart upon you from before the foundation of the world, elected you for salvation. That's where salvation began, but that's not where it was finished. The Father sent his Son, and Jesus came, and he accomplished your salvation by obeying the law for you, paying the penalty for your sins, being resurrected from the dead. But there was another step that had to take place in order for you to be saved. I mean, really, if it just ended there, you wouldn't be saved. 
Something else had to happen. That is the Holy Spirit had to do a work in your heart. The Holy Spirit had to come and open your eyes and soften your heart and give you ears to hear to regenerate you so that you would then be able to receive Jesus as your Savior. Acknowledge your sin and receive Christ as your Savior. And that's an essential part of salvation for anyone. The work of the Holy Spirit. Nobody in this place would be a Christian if it weren't for the Holy Spirit. And so what John is saying here is the anointing that you received, that's, that's a reference to that beginning point of your salvation. Now, the reason this is so interesting is because generally when we think of the anointing, I mean, don't we generally think that that's something that belongs to other people? <laughs> that it's the really super Christians? That it's the miracle workers who are anointed? It's the faith healers who are anointed? It's the mega church pastors who are anointed? They have a special anointing. I saw um, a story in the news just this week um, from a pastor who was concerned about criticism that he was receiving in social media. And what he said is you have to be very careful about criticizing God's anointed. And the suggestion was that since he's a pastor, he's anointed and, and others aren't. But that's not what John is saying here. Go back to verse 20. Who, is, who are the ones anointed? It's you. You've been anointed, Christian. Again, verse 27, the anointing that you received. You, Christian, you who trust in Jesus, you are the anointed. You have received the anointing that happened when you became a Christian. It's not something that happens later when you develop a special talent. It's not something that happens when you begin to speak in tongues. It's not reserved for that. It's something given to all Christians, the Holy Spirit of the living God. Let me show you this in some other passages. In uh, John chapter 7, look what Jesus says. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. The heart overflowing with rivers of living water. That's an anointing. But is that something reserved for just certain special people in the church? No, it's for whoever believes in him. Whoever's a Christian. We see this again in Titus. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly. See, sometimes we think, well, the anointed, those people over there, the Holy Spirit's been poured out richly on them, but not on me. Not according to Paul and Titus. Anybody who's saved, not because of works done in righteousness, but according to God's mercy, has been richly a recipient of the Holy Spirit. I mean, that ought to really increase your excitement about being a Christian, your expectation about what God can do in you and through you. You're the anointed Christian. If you're not a Christian today, you're not the anointed. <laughs> but that's the distinction between the non-Christian and the Christian, not between the Christian, not, not between the ordinary Christian and the super-Christian. That's not the distinction. So here's what the Spirit does. He converts us, convicts us, comforts us. But in the context of this passage, 
that has to do with those who are trying to deceive you in verse 26. What John seems to be saying here is that this anointing is going to do something else, and that is that the anointing is going to enable you to discern the difference between truth and error. That's one of the great works of the Holy Spirit. He's given to you so that you would have ears to hear what is right, and when what is false is proclaimed, you'll say, hmm, that doesn't sound quite right. That's what the Spirit does in your life. It, it gives you ears. You know, have you ever been like in, a, in a, maybe a shopping mall where there's a lot of people and there's a lot of talking going on? Maybe you're with a, your, your spouse or a loved one and then you get separated or maybe you choose to go to different stores and, you know, and then you don't know where the person is and, is, is. and all of a sudden you hear your name being called out. And your name, the sound, it's not just your name, it's the sound of that voice, your loved one, and it just cuts right through the noise. Cuts right through and goes right to your ears. And you're like, I know who that is. I know who's calling me. That's kind of an illustration of the way the Spirit works in the lives of the Christian. Gives you ears to recognize the truth and to be suspicious about error. You should rely on certainly the objective revelation of the Word of God. But there's also a subjective, inward thing going on here in the power of the Spirit as we hear different kinds of teachings in the world. Well, verse 27, um, what, what does this passage mean? Uh, it has caused some trouble for some people. Verse 27 says, The anointing that you receive from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. Well, what does that mean? Does, does that suggest you, you don't, you know, this is a waste of time. I'm up here trying to teach you guys. Is this saying that this is unnecessary? You don't need any human teachers in your life? Is that what John means? I mean, I think the answer is clearly no, because first of all, what is John doing then? I mean, he's writing this book to teach his readers, right? So certainly he wouldn't be saying, here, I'm going to teach you something. Don't listen to me. <laughs> I'm going to teach you not to listen to my teaching. That doesn't make any sense. But like in Ephesians 4, additionally, it says that God has set apart, set aside teachers, so it's clearly God's will that there be teachers in the church. This cannot mean that we have no need for human teachers. I think what John means here is this, getting back to what I was saying earlier, with reference to these false teachers, with reference to verse 26, I'm writing these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. That's the context. So the idea here is that these who are trying to deceive you, who are trying to teach you, trying to pull you away from the gospel, you don't need their teaching. Is what John is saying. You, you don't need them because what you've heard from the beginning and what the Holy Spirit has revealed to you is sufficient. And this additional teaching is unnecessary. And the Spirit has been given to you so that you can, at the end of verse 27, tell the difference between what is true and what is a lie. That's what the Spirit does. So, you know, friends, as you listen, you know, you'll hear stuff on social media and as you listen to various teachings, you'll hear people say things. Maybe your, your, your friends, I mean, you just hear it all the time. People saying things like, you know, Jesus is a, a great teacher. Yeah, that's true. But there's really nothing that different about him and teachers and leaders of other religions. Jesus is one way and Muhammad is another and all the other various religious options are all legitimate options. Yeah, you know, people say that, and you know, you, you ought to think, yeah, I don't know. 
That doesn't sound quite right. Or when people say, and this is something being said with some regularity today about the cross, that when Jesus the Son died on the cross, it's a form of cosmic child abuse. I mean, that, that's the, the phrase, cosmic child abuse, the idea that the father would punish his son. You ought to hear that and go, wait a minute, that, that doesn't sound right. Because, you know, Jesus didn't go to the cross involuntarily, unwillingly. Jesus laid down his life of his own accord, he said. He said, not your will, or not my will done, but, but your will. Jesus wanted to do the Father's will and went to the cross of his own volition. That's cosmic child abuse. That should strike you as wrong. If somebody says to you, you know, if you just have enough faith, you can have anything you want. You need a new car, believe that you have it, and it shall be yours. That ought to strike you as that's not quite right. That doesn't sound like what I've heard from the beginning. (laughs) Today we have a lot of emphasis on social justice in our culture and the importance of social justice. And it is important. And as Christians, we should be interested in immigration issues and racial reconciliation issues and poverty issues, and we should be involved. But friends, don't make the mistake of equating social justice with the gospel. They're not the same thing. Social justice is a fruit of the gospel, but it's not the same as the gospel. Our efforts to feed the poor and take care of the world is not the good news that the world needs to hear. The world's not going to be saved by our efforts. The world's going to be saved by what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. That's our only hope for salvation. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't get involved. I'm not saying that. That doesn't mean that we're indifferent about these things. I'm not saying that at all. Just keep them separate. That's one of those areas I'm talking about. It's so easy to be deceived in that way. To think that the gospel, the hope of the world, is in what we do. That's just falling right back into a works righteousness that the Bible is constantly denying. The good news, friends, is that the Holy Spirit, the one who abides in you, is the one who will give you that discernment to recognize those differences. Do you remember what it was like, friends, what you heard from the very beginning? Do you remember what it was like when you first became a Christian? I mean, I remember that. I was 17 years old, <clears throat> high school student at Carmel High School, and um, a, a, a staff person from Campus Crusade, as it was called at the time, um, sat down next to me, got out his four spiritual laws. This is a long time ago. I don't know if they still have the four spiritual laws, but he began to explain to me what was necessary to be saved. He said, you know, Bob, it's really not about your works. It's not about your efforts to be religious and to be a good boy or to be a good American or whatever it was, it's not about any of that. He said it's about grace. It's about a gift. It's about what God has done in Jesus and now he offers it to you freely. It's a gift to be received by faith. And I'd never heard that. I mean, I'd been in church my whole life and maybe that church was proclaiming that. I probably didn't have ears to hear maybe. But that was news to me. And he said, do you want to receive Jesus as your Savior? And I said, yeah, I do. And so that's when I prayed to receive Christ. And Paul Gable, who was the guy I'm talking about, was so good. And he said, here's what you need to do. You need to develop a prayer life. You need to to be reading the Word. And so I began to do that. And I remember reading the Bible and just being just fascinated with all of the places where grace was like leaping off the pages. 
It's like, wow, this is really true. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and it's not your works in Ephesians. I'd never seen that. That's awesome. In Galatians 2, it's not, you know, we're not justified by works of the law. It's by, it's by faith. Justification is through faith, not by works. I saw it in Romans. I saw it in Titus. I saw it all over the place. Suddenly, the Bible was just filled with grace, and my eyes were opened. I couldn't wait to read the Bible. I couldn't wait to go to church. I couldn't wait to tell others about Jesus. And what John is saying is, you remember what that was like in the beginning when you came to faith and you were excited about Jesus? That's what you need. Go back to that. And maybe some of you are, are being so led off into so many different rabbit trails that you've forgotten how good it is to be a sinner saved by grace. And that's, that's the essence of this message. And this is what John is reminding us to do. Abide in the word. Let the word sink into your heart. Make it flow through your veins like a river. And then remember, you've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And in the end, it's really not up to your efforts. It's God who has promised to never leave you or forsake you. It's God's Holy Spirit living in you that will open your ears to the truth and close them to error. What a blessing it is to know that the work that he started in us is one that he is going to finish in guarding us from those who are trying to deceive us. Let's pray. God in heaven, would you please help us to be people of your word. And Holy Spirit, we pray, keep our ears open, our eyes open to the truth, guard us from error, and keep us in your son. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.